From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, November 18th. At 20 years old, Everett Roos disappeared. He wrote his family back in Los Angeles that he'd be traveling for a couple months, headed into canyons around Escalante, Utah. It was 1934, and Roos was on a long journey of self-discovery. He was encouraged in these wanderings, supported financially by his mother, an artist who saw creative talent in her youngest son. As he traversed the Sierras and high desert, Roos would occasionally trade and sell his block prints and watercolors. He wrote, made art, and grew increasingly attached to the natural world. And in November 1934, he penned a letter. He wrote to his brother Waldo, as to when I shall revisit civilization, it will not be soon, I think. I have not tired of the wilderness. And then he's gone. Ken Sanders of Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City. Not only is he a titan of the rare books industry, he's also an expert on Roos. And he says in early 1935, when Roos's parents hadn't heard from their son for several months, they figured something was wrong. Spearheaded by his mom, they turned over heaven and earth trying to find the beloved lost son. But they never did. And Everett Bruce has become this, this, this ghost figure of all of Canyonlands. There's still so much speculation on Roos's disappearance nearly a century later. Did he have an accident on the Slick Rock? Maybe a fall? Or even foul play? Do we know if he deliberately disappeared or not? No, we don't. What we have is the body of work that he left, the letters, the writings, the journals, and his artwork, both the woodblock prints and the paintings. It's this, what Roos left behind, that has turned him into a cult-like figure for generations of people drawn in similar ways to the wilderness. The creative work attached to his mystery has captivated writers and other artists since the late 1930s. Desert Magazine. In the late 30s, they teamed up with the Roos family and for years ran full pages of his artwork, writings, poetry, with pleas for help to to actively find him when they, they thought in the 30s he might still be alive. And Sanders says the late 1930s are just the beginning of the slew of words penned about this young man. Richard Stegner in 1940, Edward Abbey wrote about him in Slick Rock. Bud Rush's book, Vagabond for Beauty, it's, it's available in a wonderful Movies, songs, poetry, so many artists have drawn inspiration from sort of an idea Roos represents. He was a free spirit. He, he loved, I mean, going to places like... Escalante, Utah, to this day, it's not on the way to somewhere else. You have to want to get there, right? Well, he's become this, this, this metaphor, if you will, for, for wild things, for wild places, for wild people. In my mind, he's, he's more of just, he's this idea at this point, you know, and I, I think that's, you know, the, the fact that he, you know, disappeared is, it certainly helps with that mystique. Moab artist Chad Niehaus He agrees that Roos is almost frozen in time. He will forever have this sort of youthful gumption attached to him, a confidence likely supported by his privilege to wander about in the natural world. But Nihal says there's still a lot to relate to in his story. Something that he talked about a lot was just this dichotomy between the natural world and society, you know, and how he felt much more comfortable out there as opposed to 
you know, in more of a, an urban environment. And, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people, especially artists and, and, and a more sensitive type of people, feel that pretty strongly. And so to have somebody who, you know, um, is kind of admired that in some ways suffered from that same dilemma, it, it's, 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 I'd say it's kind of comforting. Roos's connection to the natural world and the emotions that he experienced within it is evident in his artwork. So that's that's something I love about the exhibit, is just kind of getting a peek back into the artist's process. A collection of his block prints is currently on display at the Moab Museum. The exhibit traces his wanderings from the California coast to the familiar landscapes of the desert southwest. They're a shock of light and shadow. Juniper trees, ancient structures, desert buttes. Everett Roos is sometimes criticized for like maybe not being quite there with his artistic talent. Like he, and that was just true. Like he was 20 or whatever, you know, he was, he was producing this stuff when he was in his late teens. But Niehaus says focusing on that for him kind of misses the point of Roos's art. Niehaus also works in block prints. Like Roos, he depicts places in Canyon country that carry an emotional connection for him. And he says there's just something about the simplicity of having a feeling or seeing something beautiful and just needing to get it down. That truly is the essence of making art. This concept of Everett Roos to me is that he would just do whatever he needed to do to express himself at that particular time. And to be basically living in that headspace where he's noticing the world at a level where he needs to express himself. So, you know, I, I think people will talk more about his, his writings as far as kind of being an important legacy. Um, but for me, again, I think it's an important lesson for us to not take ourselves too seriously, but to actually create, to actually do the thing. And so to not be so worried about it being the best thing you've ever done or whatever, just to actually be in this process and feeling the confidence to continue to produce and create. So when I see his work, it's a reminder to me to basically loosen up, drop my shoulders, make the art, move on. Niehaus will display a few block prints inspired by Reese's style at the Moab Museum soon. And this week, a high school art appreciation class received a special tour of the Everett Roos exhibit. Students like Lane Peterson and Monica Belafondo are the same age as Roos when he was making some of this work in the wilderness. They're pretty cool. He had a lot of cool designs. It looks like it'd be fun to do. They're pretty unique. Like just being out and seeing, like just doing what you're seeing in the moment, that's kind of, that's pretty cool. I would sooner walk a day behind the burro than spend two whole hours on the streetcar. Black Prince by Everett Roos will be up at the Moab Museum through February. The museum will also have a variety of programs this winter that, as they say, offer a window into Roos's creative legacy. Find information on Roos-inspired printmaking workshops and an upcoming writer's workshop at moabmuseum.org. Time to Live from the album Wilderness Song by musician Dan Byrne. That album is yet another Roos-inspired creative work. All songs on the album are adapted from Roos's letters, essays, and poems. Thanks to Dan for giving us permission to play from it. The Grand County Commission was in session this week. So, what happened at the what meeting? Happened at the meeting? At the meeting? What happened at the meeting? Whatever happened, what at, the happened meeting? at the meeting? What happened at the meeting? What uh, exactly happened at the meeting?
Maggie McGuire, editor of the Moab Sun News, answers. Commissioners approved an ordinance to allow long-term housing in non-conventional structures. The alternative dwelling ordinance doesn't approve any existing illegal campsites, but creates a path for property owners to offer RVs, tiny homes, or other structures to local workers. The program is a pilot limited to one year or 150 approved units. The commission also had two budget workshops this week, trimming proposed expenses considerably. The proposed budget will be posted on the county website, grandcountyutah.net, by the end of November. And that's what happened at this week's Grand County Commission meeting. This exercise in civics is a collaboration between KZMU News and the Moab Sun News. Find recaps of local government meetings at moabsunnews.com. And you can watch the meetings on YouTube. Find Grand County, Utah and Moab City there. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. In 1973, the Moab community was shocked when the wife of Woody Woodward, owner of Woody's Tavern, was found murdered at the establishment. Police never caught a suspect, but a new hire at the Moab Police Department is looking at the case again. Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent spoke with Justin Higginbottom about their story. One of the big stories we have on the front page this week is uh, I interviewed uh, Jeremy Drexler. He uh, is a veteran law enforcement officer. He actually retired back in 2014. Uh, he spent 23 years in law enforcement in Wisconsin. Um, he uh, sold and um, consulted government agencies on the use of drones, um, mostly you know first responders. Anyway, um, one of the uh, things that he, one of the tasks that he was assigned was to uh, look at a, a cold case, a murder that took place at Woody's Tavern back in uh, 1973, I believe it was uh, early March 1973, Ann Woodward, she was uh, the wife and co-owner of uh, Woody Woodward, who um, they, they, they were the owners, and uh, her body was found uh, laying between a couple of pool tables there in the bar, and uh, there were obvious signs that she had been uh, abused and um, assaulted, and um, I've read a lot of different stories about it, uh, you know, Moab police back in 1973 really weren't trained on how to deal with homicides. And a lot of the evidence um, probably got compromised with people walking through without securing the crime scene and, and what have you. But they, they did have some DNA, and it was tested in 2006 with no results, obviously. But um, now they have a, a newer technique, uh, touch DNA, uh, according to uh, Detective Drexler, uh, anytime any of us open a door without wearing gloves, we open a door, we either leave fingerprints or we leave skin cells that will provide DNA. Um, the problem is you can choose to get f- to get them dusted for fingerprints or tested for DNA, but you can't do both because one process will destroy your ability to do the other test. So I believe, and this is just speculation, I believe they have enough DNA evidence left over that they could um, split it in half and do two, you know, one, one test of each to try to, uh, to find, uh, find out who did this. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, yeah, it's such a heinous crime uh, and kind of part of Moab lore. Um, it's amazing they, they were able to hold on to that evidence for so long and that they can still use it. They, they certainly did that right, um, for sure. Detective Drexler says that um, it's absolutely solvable. 
I wanted to clarify because I, I should have pointed this out in my story. That doesn't mean he's going to solve it. He's not saying he's going to solve it. He's saying that there's enough evidence there that it is solvable. So I don't want to put him on the spot and like, you know, I'm super cop. I'm going to um, solve this crime that's 50 years old that nobody else could uh, or nearly 50 years old. And it's one of the things, you know, I've covered a hundreds of murder trials in my career, literally hundreds. That's not an exaggeration. And it, it never ceases to amaze me. I mean, it, it's amazing how, um, you know, like I said, a 50-year-old 50, 50 case, and it's just so personal because it, it happened in your town, you know? Yeah, I think people will be extremely appreciative of any any work done on this. Uh, Woodward's family are, are still in town, correct? Correct, yeah. yeah. So so I'm sure they're going to be following this. And, um, yeah, that's that's some good news for, for a really horrible murder. Yeah, and, you know— um, and Woody, you know, he died a few years ago in Kansas, and um, you know, for a lot, the, there was there were a, a percentage of the community that just they were relentless in accusing him of of being the guy, and and I think that I know that when police, they always suspect the spouse, um, and it's not a bad plan because it, it does happen, unfortunately. But there was never any evidence, even remotely, that, that he was involved. So, um, and I imagine that his DNA was all over that bar. So, you know, I don't know how they could have not found it if, if it was him. So it's just, yeah, it's just a, a, a terrible story. Yeah, very, very painful for the community. That, that would be amazing if some, some closure could, uh, could come from that. Um, well, great. What, what else do you have on your front page here, Doug? Well, I think a story that's probably of most relevance that we should discuss is uh, the Grand County Commission on Tuesday night voted 6-0 to approve a, uh, an overlay district for uh, alternative dwelling. It's a pilot program that's going to last a year. And um, they've got a lot of safeguards in place. There's, there's some concern that uh, people might try to take advantage of it and, and use them for overnight rentals, which would absolutely defeat the purpose of the entire plan is for workforce housing and essentially um, people who qualify can uh, set up a spot on their land for camper vans rvs people that live that alternative lifestyle um, and they're content doing that but this would give them some uh, reliability that they're going to have a place to hang their head at night um, in their vehicle or their rv or whatever the tiny home you know there's all kinds of different options um and I think that the county and the county planning commission, you know, they they did take a lot of opposition to this, and a lot of the opposition uh, is legitimate. I mean, traffic concerns, water resources, sewage. What's gonna What's it gonna do to my neighborhood? What's it gonna do to my property values? So there's some legitimate concerns out there, but I think this is gonna be a lot more controlled than than people think. And one thing that um, they've made a very important uh, note of is that um, if you do use it for overnight rentals and you violate the the, the rule, um, they have reserved their uh, civil and criminal authority to to go after you. So I, I think that there's going to be an incentive not to try to uh, take advantage of the overnight rental market. Yeah, I think they're they're taking that pretty seriously, yeah. and I think neighbors also will. We'll be watching out. You know somebody will drop a dime <laughs> yeah, <that's definitely. laughs> really quick. And, and I, I think people that are living there 
and because they feel like they're probably going to be losing their stability if if this guy's doing that. Right. Um, and, and and another thing, I don't think that I know one of the concerns with this these were going to spot up on on every corner, and I I don't think that's going to happen because they're going to prefer properties that for one thing can access an arterial or collector road rather than a small road for, to, to uh, mitigate traffic impacts and, and things of that nature. It's going to be an interesting year, and I imagine there's going to be a lot of eyes uh, looking at this to see what happens. Yeah, and, and am I correct in assuming this this kind of already happens in town and this will be a sort of legalization process for for some of these areas where where people already are, are living in RVs and such on private property? It's, it's clearly happening. I think it's almost at epidemic levels in uh, Spanish Valley level uh, area. Um, I, be- I, I, I believe I'm accurate here. And if I'm not, I'm really close. I think that uh, groundwater and sewer is aware of um, at least 50 properties where this is occurring on some level. And I've, I, I walked by one property and there were several RVs um, and they were all, people were living in them, lights were on them, but I didn't see any uh, uh, clean out valves or anywhere where you could dump sewage or anything like that. So it's a major concern. Groundwater and sewer have taken a really compassionate approach and they're allowing them to occur simply because the housing problem is so endemic and insidious. It's it's horrible. So they're kind of, uh, I won't say they're turning a blind eye because they're not, um, but they, they are being really quite tolerant um, of, of it. And this will, this new uh, ordinance will compel those people to get into compliance and make sure that, um, you know, their black water is going down the right hole and, um, water resources are, are adequate and you know, all of that good stuff. Great. What else do you have here? I'll just stop with this one. Uh, if you go to Moab Canyonlands uh, Field Airport and you see your friend standing by the fence as you're about to get on the plane, just get on the plane. Don't don't walk over to the fence and have a conversation because uh, short-staffed um, SkyWest uh, didn't uh, uh, catch that and uh, a TSA agent did. So they had to, everybody that was on that plane had to disembark and get rescanned. And uh, there was a fear that they were going to be upset, but I think they were grateful. Uh, the, the word I got was that they were grateful. They were taking that precaution. And, but yeah, just really a serious breach. Um, it would have been frightening, I think, to have been on that plane. Right. Yeah. I guess I'm sure it was annoying for some at the time, but, um, but yeah, better be safe than sorry when, yeah. you're, when you're boarding flights. Yes. And there's been a, a, there's been some things about uh, the airport. Another uh, somebody else vandalized the um, water fountain area, and they didn't catch that on camera because there were no cameras. So airport director Tammy Howland has um, uh, ordered more cameras. I believe they have them, and now they're waiting for IT to set them up. One more business that's uh, short staffed in the area. Yes, and then quite an important one. All right, thank you so much, Doug. Yeah, thank you. Doug McMurdo, editor at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Local reporters had another story about world-famous Woody's Tavern this week. The state is threatening to revoke the bar's liquor license after the establishment closed for more than 10 days without notifying the Utah Department of Alcoholic Beverage Services. 
Allison Harford spoke with Justin Higginbottom about Utah's liquor license situation. World famous Woody's Tavern, which is Moab's long running neighborhood bar, um, could lose its liquor license for a code violation this summer when in July the business stayed closed for over 10 days without notifying the Utah Department of Alcoholic Beverage Services. And there's a rule that if establishments close for over 10 days, then they have to get permission. Right. And so we did a story about this and heard the kind of background um, behind them having to close. Can, can you explain what that situation was? Yeah. So it was kind of a perfect storm of events. Uh, so I talked to Sherry Beck, who is the owner of Woody's Tavern since 1991. Um, and she said the bar had this string of troubles throughout the summer. And so it started when this motorcyclist backed up to the open door of the bar and revved the engine which filled the bar with exhaust fumes and the smell of burnt rubber. And then somebody snapped a picture of a Woody's employee allegedly drinking while working, which Beck said was not true. Um, But DABS, that's the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Services, got a hold of that photo, served Woody's with a notice to close for a few days as punishment. Um, And so they were scheduling that. And then in the last week of June, the new air conditioner Beck had bought for the season died. She was told it would take a week for the system to be fixed. And meanwhile, the swamp coolers were broken. So she posts this sign on the door that says on vacation, July 3rd to 14th. And she thought that the rule was anything under two weeks had to be, you would have to notify DABS. Um, And so she decided to close for these 12 days because she needed to close for a couple days for the employee thing. All of these things were broken. She also had this feeling that something else was likely to go wrong. Um, so she sends a photo of the door with this on vacation sign to dabs as proof of closing. And then halfway through this week, something else did go wrong. Um, the sewer pumps broke. And so Beck found herself personally cleaning out the bar sewer system and the heat and the smell, which she said was miserable. And so everything was broken. Everything was chaotic. Um, she had this incredibly chaotic 12 days trying to get Woody's back open by the 15th within this 12 days that she thought she had. Um, And last week she received a notice from Dabs that she broke this 10-day closure rule and her license would be automatically forfeit. Um, And Beck is expected for a public hearing at the next Dabs commission meeting on November 29th in Taylorsville. Yeah. And as, you know, listeners know, Woody's is such a cultural institution in Moab. Um, It's been around forever. And it's just such a just such a meeting place for for locals. um, And of course, for tourists, but especially the people who who work here. If if Beck loses her license, that's a pretty big deal. um, Because she would have to reapply for one. And could, could you tell me a bit about the situation with liquor licenses in Utah? Yeah, yeah. So this whole conflict really illuminates this ongoing issue of liquor licensing in Utah. So Utah is one of 17 states in the U.S. where liquor licenses are subject to a per capita quota. Um, And there are a variety of different licenses in Utah. A bar establishment license, which Woody's has, means only customers over 21 can enter the establishment. And those customers can order any alcoholic beverage, beer, wine, or liquor without needing to order food. So these licenses are very coveted in Utah. The bar establishment one is the only one that allows customers to order any alcoholic beverage um, and only an alcoholic beverage. Um, However, the quota is that... Um, statewide, there's only one bar establishment license to 
every 10,200 people. So currently there are only around 330 licenses up for grabs for bars in the entire state. Um, And that is not a lot of licenses. So competition for these licenses is really fierce. Um, And also most bars are located in um, Salt Lake County. And as of November 16th, 197 of those 300-ish licenses were located near Salt Lake City. Grand County currently has five retailers with bar establishment licenses, including Woody's. And so competition for these licenses has always been really, really cutthroat. Um, Demand always exceeds supply, and licenses become available through population increases or through a retailer forfeiting their license. And it has to be an official population increase. So this is like the census or a fiscal year survey. So they only become available every few months. Um, And so during the last um, Department of Alcoholic Beverage Services commission meeting, there were two licenses up for grabs and 11 applicants. Um, And so the commission was trying to decide between these 11 applicants, including including proper brewing, um, which is constructing a new location in Moab. Um, And they really favor establishments that are ready to go. And so... They'll give licenses to establishments that are fully constructed and staffed, um, but will really quickly take away licenses. So something kind of similar to the Woody situation happened last month in that there was this bar um, in Ogden called the Sand Trap Cafe that had been closed since July due to a kitchen fire. Um, and the owner came to this October meeting and told the commission that she was unable to reopen the bar because the building was no longer up to code due to the fire, um, but she had hoped to be able to keep her license and transfer it to a new address. Um, But because she had no timeline for opening, the commission revoked the bar's license and gave it to somebody else. And so they're very quick to revoke a license if they think that bars aren't using them or won't be able to use them. And so the commission's next regular meeting on November 29th will include this public hearing for Woody's. Right. So they'll they'll have a hearing uh, in Taylorsville. Is that correct? Yes, it'll Lake? be in Taylorsville. Yeah. So on the 29th and um, Beck's asking people if they're in the area to show up. Um, and she also has an online petition you can sign. Yeah. The petition currently has over a thousand signatures. And that's Save Woody's Tavern yeah. Petition. Um, on change.org. Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting that it's determined per capita or just by our population. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure as Utah has a lot more people now, but also I think the people coming to Utah probably have a you know higher demand for bars than Utah's you know original population centers. Um, right. So you did a story about another popular meeting place in town, uh, Community Gardens, New Community Gardens. Yeah. So Moab Community Gardens um, is this little organization that has been around for a while and builds um, these community gardens in town where people can sign up for plots. And so they're working on a new location next to Wabi Sabi. Excellent. And uh, what's that going to look like? When you go to Wabi Sabi, there's this empty lot that's right next to the building, kind of hidden um, behind the thrift store and the parking lot. And so they're going to build a new garden there. And um, this has been in motion for a while. Becky Mann, who um, is the manager of Mocom Gardens, um, said that she's been working with Wabi Sabi on this idea for a couple of years, and they really want to turn it into this community space. And so... 
as a community garden, um, it'll have a number of four by 16 foot raised beds. And the raised beds have two foot high walls. Um, They'll have amazing soil because Becky really knows what she's doing in making soil. Um, And people will be able to sign up for them um, at the beginning of next year. Awesome. And, and what are community gardens? Like, what, what does that involve? Yeah. So when you sign up for a community garden space, um, you can pick between a level of different space. So like there's like a five foot by 10 foot bed or these ones will be four by 16 foot beds. Um, and people it's really affordable. So people can offer to volunteer and pay a smaller fee or pay a higher fee and not volunteer at the garden as much. But you basically just get a blank um, plot of soil and it's all irrigated. And so it's really just an opportunity for people who maybe don't have gardening space at home or are only going to be here for one season or want to be able to tap into the knowledge of more experienced gardeners. Um, yeah, to have a space to do so. So I talked to Becky Mann about the community garden spaces and she said she really likes them because there's a lot of mixing in garden experience levels and age groups. Um, And it's an opportunity for people to talk to people they may not normally talk to. Um, And especially with the new location at Wabi Sabi, it's so central and close to town. She expects that a lot of people will be able to walk there or maybe they'll just meet there to spend an afternoon outside. Um, in this piece of earth that's theirs. Awesome. Well, I love visiting a town and kind of stumbling across these like neighborhood gardens and little hidden spaces that um, you wouldn't think there would be people growing vegetables there. It's kind of nice. So it's cool that Moab's getting another one. So so what, what else do you have this week? So I also talked to Samantha Metzner, who spent a few months this year as the community artist in the parks. Um, So this program takes a local artist and for at least 24 hours each week, they create art in the National Park Service's Southeast Utah group of parks, which includes Arches and Canyonlands and also the Hovenweave and Natural Bridges National Monuments. So she was doing the program from April to October 2022. So she just wrapped up a couple weeks ago and I um, wanted to catch up with her to talk about how it went for her and how she grew. Um, I always love talking to local artists, especially when they are doing programs like this. Um, Last year, Julia Buckwalter was the community artist in the parks. And so it's kind of this really cool program for local artists. Um, And Sam basically said that um, she did grow a lot during the residency. We talked about how she really liked having a structure to her days. And, you know, like when creating art is your job, you can't wait for that moment of inspiration. You just kind of have to figure out how to make art every day. And so she said she actually really thrived under that structure. And her art is kind of twofold. So she is a photographer and then she prints her photos with cyanotypes, which is basically you coat a piece of paper in these chemicals that react to sunlight and then you put a negative over it. And so it will expose the negative onto a piece of paper. Um, Yeah, but cyanotype images appear in shades of blue. And then there's this other printing process called Van Dyke that prints in shades of brown and so when she has these prints um, to perfect the art she'll watercolor over them and so in the park she split her time between taking photos and watercoloring prints she said she really liked getting an opportunity to 
be more of a painter in her art because she's traditionally a photographer. So she created artwork depicting pieces of the landscape like mesa arch and double arch and the needles. But then she also took time to pick out these really small moments of the park. Like she created art showing cacti and yucca plants. Awesome. Yeah, I, I bet that's that's really dramatic. Uh, I can't wait to check those out. Yeah, um, you can follow along with Sam Metzer on Instagram at samantha.jade.art. Um, and she said she really wants to keep the momentum going with her artwork. Cool. Well, we hope she does. Yeah. Thank you so much, Allie. Yeah. Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.